The sermon this morning is drawn from our psalm, which we just sang, Psalm 101. In Calvin and Hobbes years ago, there was a strip where Calvin was reading a history book out loud, and he was reading to Hobbes and he said, in the Middle Ages, men lived in a futile system. And Hobbes looked at him and said, don't you mean feudal? And Calvin said, you know, just when this book was starting to make sense, the feudal system of government is one that has been with mankind a long, long time. It was not only the government of the Middle Ages, it was the government of the ancient world, and arguably it's never actually gone away. The regimentation of human society nobles and serfs, tends to be a marker of mankind, and the, the scriptures assume it. The scriptures speak in terms of a feudal structure, and even the covenant that God has with men is a feudal covenant, in a very real sense, because God is king, and we are God's subjects. If you follow the line of the scriptures through history, God called a people to himself and he said to them, I will be your king. You will not have a human king. You will not need a human king because I, the Lord your God, am your king. But when you reach 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of God cry out and say, you know, this having you as our king isn't working out for us. Uh, we would like a king like all the nations have, and God says, fine, you can have a king like all the nations have, and they get one, a king like all the nations have, which is ultimately an immoral, self-serving wretch, because that tends to be what human kings are like. In fact, that is the grand majority of them. But when God allowed the people to call a king, and they called Saul, there was never any inclination in what God said, then or any other time, that God said, well, I've given you a king, so I will now back off and I will not actually be king. You have a king. Rather, the language of scripture changes, and the king of Israel is acknowledged as a king, but he is acknowledged as a vassal king. In feudalism, kings can be over kings. A king over a king is often called an emperor, not always, but a king can rule over a king, and that becomes the way the language is in the Bible. David becomes king of Israel, but is David the king of Israel? Even though God gives them a human king, is any man actually the top, the highest in Israel? The answer is no. God never abdicates. God never stops being king. Rather, he allows the people of God to have a king over them, but he is over them. And the situation is very futile. It's very one lord over another lord, ultimately going down to the people. And the reason why I point this all out is Psalm 101 
is from the hand of David, and he is writing once he has become a king, and David is writing as a vassal king. He is Lord of the people. God has made him so. But David is well aware that the real king over every king, the real Lord over every Lord, and if that is true of every king, it is triply true of the king of the people of God. It is true of the church. God is the real king. The buck, the buck in the church of God does not stop with any human being. It does not stop with a presbytery or a committee. It doesn't stop with David. The king of the king is the Lord God. And David is making pledges to the king he is a vassal of as a subject king. He rules God's people, but he doesn't rule them for himself. He rules them as subject to God, and he is singing to God, Psalm 101, and he is making pledges to his Lord about how he is going to live as a king to serve the king that is over him. And the pledges have a very logical flow. In verse 1, David says, I will sing of your mercy and of your loving kindness. The New King James put it as justice, but it's a translation of the word that said. These are, as you know very well, terms that are very covenantal in their use. David begins by acknowledging he is under God. God has, has said for him, God is above him. He is in subjectivity to God. God has mercy upon him as the greater upon a lesser. And David begins his vows to God saying, I acknowledge that your character is such that you are merciful and you are a faithful keeper of your covenant. And I will begin by extolling your character by singing about it. When you sing to God, you are praising him, you are glorifying him. You're, the reason why you sing is to glorify language. And David says, I will sing about who you are above me. Your character is good. And because of who you are in verse 1, I will, quote, behave wisely and in a perfect way in verse 2. In Bible study this morning, we are going through Proverbs, and we are looking at wisdom. And one of the things I have been trying to point out as we go through it is wisdom and God's law are two sides of the same coin. God's law is wise, and true wisdom is lawful. These ideas cannot be broken apart and they're actually encoded into the very world that God has created. If you live according to God's law, you're living wisely, and you're integrating with the general flow of the world. If you are living against God's law, you're living foolishly, and you're going against the flow of the world, and ultimately you will be burned up. Ultimately you will be ground down. The, the man who lives foolishly lives lawlessly, uh, and he brings himself to a bad end early, generally. Well, David 
says, you are my king above me, and I am the king under you, and I acknowledge this relationship, I don't rule for myself, and I will consider my behavior, and I will live before you wisely, and I will live before you in as perfect a way as I can. He uses the term, I will live in a perfect way. Uh, We know David's life, and we know that doesn't work out exactly the way he would like it, but that is his goal. The vow he is making to his greater, the vow he is making as a vassal is, I will serve you perfectly. That, That is my promise. And this will be from my heart in verse 2. Verse 2 reads as, I will behave myself in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. As your servant ruling your people, it will not just be a show and a pretense, as often can be the case with people who are in high position, We see that in Saul, where going through 1 Samuel, we see Saul use religious language and religious terminology, and he knows how to talk religion. But when he is not in front of people, when the camera is not on him, uh, he is a hater of God. David says, as a servant in your house under you, I will govern from my heart. I will not just sing about your virtues and act like I'm joyful about them. I will really be joyful in who God is, and I will serve God in truth, not just pretense. It will be a matter of my heart. And in verse 3, the vows begin to get very practical. He has spoken up to this point of his internal estate and the, the attitude he should have to God, Now he starts talking about specific actions, and verse 3 says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. In considering actions, David begins with the idea of what he, quote, sets before his eyes. Long, long before the invention of the television, human psychology has always been captivated by what it gazes upon. Not just what the glance falls upon, but what the individual chooses to place before their eyes, to to gaze upon, to consider, to longingly think about. Those are the things David's talking about. We are all given to meditation upon certain things, gazing upon things that are are of, of taste to us. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes, David promises. Because if I set something wicked before my eyes, the lust of the eyes will lead it to cling to me. You notice the language. It will... Cling, it will hold on to me. What I gaze upon with my eyes will wrap around me lobster-like. It will take hold of me, and I won't be able to get rid of it. And what is wicked is the work of wicked people. And 
as king of God's church, as under shepherd of the flock, uh, I'm supposed to hate what wicked people do. That's the exact opposite of my calling. So I'm not going to gaze upon what they do. I'm going to hate it. And it's not going to take hold of me. In fact, in verse 4, quote, a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. That vow and the language of it is very general. Is David saying that he will put a wicked heart from himself? Or is he saying that as ruler in God's kingdom, he will not have around him wicked hearts? Well, the answer to this quandary is yes. The language is general for a reason. David says, I don't want wickedness to cling to me. I want to put wickedness of heart away from me. He has already said, as being given a calling in God's church, he will serve God from the heart. That can't be done with a heart filled with wickedness. So he will, to the best of his ability and with God's power, purge his heart of wickedness, but to do that, he will have to purge his company of wickedness too. We're going to start looking from this point as we go into the psalm at what David says about others who will be around him, and those who are around him are not to be the wicked, but they are to be the virtuous. If David's heart is to be for the Lord, he cannot live in company and fellowship with people whose hearts are wicked. That sounds like a no-duh statement, I realize, but as human beings, we live counter to that if we don't honestly watch it. We make friends and, and comrades and colleagues of the wicked, and we assume we can live in a, uh, a very pragmatic relationship with them and it will not affect us. But that's not true. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 sums it up very well. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so David makes the vow that he will seek a clean heart, but then he talks about those around him, and in verse 5 and 7, he says this concerning the wicked. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. If you wish to serve the Lord faithfully, your companions must be faithful servants of the Lord. And you'll notice that I read verse 5 and 7. In the heart of those verses is the contrast with the wicked. It is the righteous. And David says he will make his fellowship with them. In verse uh, 6 we read, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. And notice the contrast. He has said, I will not put anything wicked before my eyes. won't gaze on that. But I will gaze upon and think about and meditate on something. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. 
that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. So David continues his vows, if I'm going to serve God's people under you and, and lead them in the way that you would have me lead them, I must make a separation. I must break from my life the wicked, and I must bring into my life the righteous. That's the only way my heart is going to be defended. What we are talking about is holiness of fellowship, and it is an extremely important thing. In fact, the whole concept of holiness here is the driving beat of this song. When we think about the offices of Christ, when we think about him being prophet, priest, and king, we generally assign the concept of holiness to the prophet because the prophet comes and preaches the will of God to the people of God. So there is definitely an emphasis on holiness in the prophet. But it is not the prophet's total purview. If you know your scripture, is it a good sign or is it a bad sign when a prophet comes. When a prophet comes in scripture, does he usually come to say, you're doing a great job. The Lord God has come to me, and I have a word from the Lord. You demand. You are just doing well. Is that the general flow of the prophets? No, the general flow of the prophets tends to be twofold. The first one is, you're doing very badly. The Lord God has given me a message. You are in rebellion to God. He is going to bring wrath. And then the other side of the coin is, after the wrath, God is going to show grace and mercy. But when a prophet shows up, things have gone downhill very badly. Jesus Christ is also king. And what is the job of a king? It is to protect and govern the people of God, to see to their health, to protect them from their enemies. The king is as much given the ministry of holiness as the prophet. The king leads the people in it, hopefully. If the king is wicked, he will lead them in wickedness, but his appropriate calling is to lead them in holiness. And this entire set of vows is effectively a holiness code. If I am going to serve the God of grace, I must be holy. And the goal of being king is in verse 8. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So what is the king's role? It is to protect the land, and specifically the city of the Lord. That's what a king is called to do, who is over the church of God. God has a chosen people. They live in a chosen land. He has made a chosen place to, to meet with people in the temple. And the king's job is to protect all of that, to guard it from wickedness, and David ends his vows with, and this I will do. And all of these vows are built upon verse 2b. 
that reads, Oh, when will you come to me? That stands out if you read the psalm. It doesn't feel like it fits, and that's because it's designed not to. The vassal is saying to God, I long for you to come to me. Unlike a vassal who is unfaithful and wants his master to stay away, David is vowing to be a faithful vassal, and he wants his Lord to come to him, to give him grace, to give him mercy, to give him help. But it's also the acknowledgement of a vassal that my Lord above me can come at any time and observe and test what I'm doing. And in fact, he will do that because that's the nature of the feudal system. And I want to be found faithful. At any time, the Lord God can look down upon my reign of the people and he can test me and I want to be found faithful. I don't know when that will be. So I need to live in such a way that if it's at night or in the morning or noonday, no matter what, when God tests me, I will be found faithful. I will remember that I walk quorum Deo. I always walk before the face of God. All of my vows are built upon the fact that I know that you are there. You are watching. You will at some time test. These are my vows as a faithful servant, as king over Israel. I want to be found faithful. In most Christian communions, here would end the sermon. The dispensational pastor would read this psalm and would, would probably rightly interpret it the way I have. And he would say, well, thus for David... David was king over Israel, and that's what David was supposed to do. Isn't that interesting? But that's not exactly the way Scripture works. David is giving vows as king, but is there any reason why this psalm has been given to the people of God in general to sing even today? Well, the answer is definitely yes. I have already alluded to the fact that Jesus as the Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king. The way our catechism puts it is this in question 31. Why is he, that is Jesus, called Christ that is anointed? Answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and ever lives to make intercession for us with the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So once again, Christ is prophet, priest, and king. David is king. He's making vows. But then the next question of our catechism says, but why are you called a Christian? Answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ, I am in Christ, and thus a partaker of his anointing. What anointing? Well, the one we just spoke about is being prophet, priest, and king. In order that I may also confess his name, that's prophet, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, that's priest, 
and with a free conscience may fight against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter in eternity reign with him over all his creatures. That's the king. We are not the prophet, priest, and king, but we are in, spiritually, the one who is. Spiritually, we have been placed in Jesus Christ, and we partake of his anointing, including his kingliness. You are called to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil all the days of your life that you are the church militant, and that is kingly action. And so, as we see David taking vows of holiness because he is king under God, these vows are also vows that the faithful servant will take because he is kingly in Jesus Christ. You fight the Lord's battles, which Abigail said to David before he was king. So you are an under-shepherd and are given to take dominion of the earth. That's kingly. And as an under-shepherd who does not rule for himself, but governs under his vassal lord, uh, what vows should you take to God? Well, Shouldn't you begin by praising the Lord for his character? Shouldn't you sing to him of his loving kindness and his mercy, which he has entered in to you with? Shouldn't you say, I will behave wisely and in a perfect way because I acknowledge you are my overlord and I am under you to take possession of the earth and serve you you are always watching. I walk before you, Coram Deo. I will walk before you with wisdom and as perfect as possible. I will do it from the heart. Again, turning to Bible study this morning, we looked at the fact that there is a religiosity that is very easy to adapt that has nothing to do with the heart. You can go to the temple and you can make your sacrifices according to the biblical pattern and do it very well and then walk out of the temple and have no heart for God and to, to serve the devil, it is completely possible to do that. But you are under the Lord, called to serve him. You should serve him from the heart. Not just in pretense, but in truth. You should set nothing wicked before your eyes. It is a known fact that the morality of the Christian church is statistically no better than worldlings around it, at least in the Western world. That's just a fact. But you are under God to serve him. He is your overlord, and he wants you to rule the earth for him. The vow, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I do not want it to cling to me, and it will if I do. I hate the work of evil people. I do not want to meditate upon it. Seems like an absolute wonderful vow for any age, and especially of our own. I will not bring into my life the wicked to make them my friends. I will not enter into uh, working relationships with them, assuming that they won't affect me. I will bring to myself 
the righteous. I will bring to myself the faithful. I will serve God and I will seek the purity of the land, the purity of the city. What is the promised land in Jesus Christ? If you go to the New Testament and you look at how the New Testament uses the concept of the land, you discover that in Jesus Christ, the promised land has become the entire universe. It has spread out so that there is nowhere in creation that our Lord Jesus Christ does not rule by right and will one day rule in complete truth. The promised land is everywhere and everything. And if you go to the New Testament, what is the city of the Lord? Is it the sticks and bricks that make up Jerusalem in the Middle East? Well, the answer is actually no. If you go to, say, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, uh, you read this concerning your life as a Christian. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. So this is a comparison with physical things. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that they should not be spoken to them anymore. Rather, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new, of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The city of Jerusalem with its temple was never actually the city of God. The physical temple was never actually the temple. The city of God is the church of God. The temple of God is the assembled Christians in worship of Christ in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And so when we are called to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, what are we fighting for? We are fighting for the Lord Jesus Christ, rule over all creation, and we are seeking the reformation of God's church. We are purging the city of God, which is the church of God, of wickedness. We are fighting that it be cleansed, be holy, be true. These are the vows of an under-shepherd under God. It is... Again, just a statistical fact that the city of God, the church of God, is a city with walls broken down. It is an unholy city. It is a city through which every wind of heretical doctrine and every wind of immoral practice blows. It is undefended. Why is the church in such disarray as we find it today? It is likely because we, as God's under-shepherds, are not living quorum Deo. We are not living with the acknowledgement that God is always watching and can judge us at any time. We are not living as if we are in Christ, who is the King, 
we are not living according to holiness, we are not defending the city. The city of God is the people of God. The broken down walls are our unholiness. It is our unfaithfulness. When you see Jerusalem as it is, it is a testimony to who we are. And these are the vows that we are to take under the Lord, and we're not taking them seriously. If you would have a reformed church, you must have a holy church. You must have a church of disciples of Jesus Christ who take God's calling seriously. So these vows are actually very much for us, but is even that all that we can take from this? Again, the answer is no. For the good news is that while David penned these vows and tried to live them and failed, there is a promise of a greater David of which he was a type and shadow, and David's vows are vows that he takes, and the Lord Jesus Christ does keep them perfectly. There is a king over Israel, even this moment, a king over the church that is between us and his father. The Lord Jesus Christ rejoices in his father. He looks to his father and says, I will sing of your faithful said and of your mercy. I will sing of your qualities and I will worship you with a, a pure heart. I will rejoice in you. I will serve you as a faithful under-shepherd. And I will purge from myself the wicked. And I will draw to myself the righteous. And I will care for Jerusalem. I will defend the promised land. I will serve as king. The Lord Jesus Christ will keep these vows perfectly. And as we sing them in worship, ultimately, the only voice that can sing this psalm with true faithfulness is our Lord Jesus Christ. Left in the hands of men, the church will deform. Left in the hands of men, society will corrupt. Left in the hands of men, if only their power is considered, the cause of righteousness will collapse. But David the king, who is son of God, Jesus of Nazareth still rules. Why is there a city remaining? Why is there a gospel still in the world? Why does the light of righteousness still shine in a world so corrupted? It is because our Lord Jesus Christ has taken these vows, and he rules, and his hand will do whatever he desires. Thanks be to God that our Lord Christ has made these promises.